According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, and we're dealing with uh, circumcision, and in particular, we're dealing with um, a difficult uh, metaphor where he says we are the circumcision. And so we want to understand this for what it is. It's not as easy as uh, it is when we have the, me- the metaphor of Passover and we point out that Christ, our Passover, has been crucified. That is maybe more understandable because we can understand the doctrine, we can understand the spiritual reality of Passover and how Christ fulfills all that. It's a little bit more difficult to understand circumcision. I think largely because we don't really get circumcision from the Old Testament standpoint to begin with. Like, why is it a sign uh, when nobody can see it? Why is it uh, a seal? What is the purpose of a sign and a seal for the Jewish people, for the men only, by the way, in uh, in the ritual of circumcision there? And then how then does it correlate to us? What is our parallel in the uh, the body of Christ? What is it about being saved in the New Testament as church-age believer priests that causes us to be a circumcision, because that's in fact what we are. We are circumcision. And so I'm going to open this up with a word of prayer, and then we'll pick up on it again. But it is Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. All right, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that sins are confessed, that distractions are set aside, that we're humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I thank you, Father, that in obedience to your word, we can uh, present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we call upon your faithfulness, Father, the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to uh, open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us, to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so we call upon your faithfulness to make these things clear to each one of us. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so with respect to verses 1, 2, and 3, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And rejoice is a theme that he repeats over and over again from chapter 1 to 2 to 3 to 4. We have uh, again and again the repetition of rejoicing. And then speaking of repetition, he says beware three times. Beware, beware, beware in verse 2. Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the mutilation. All right, I don't like the term false circumcision. I prefer to change the term from circumcision to mutilation because that's what's happening here. And uh, in the uh, three bewares, by the way, all three, let me just pop this up here for you again. I think it's, uh, I might have the right slide on this. Here we go. Beware, beware, beware. All three words start with K. They start with the Greek letter kappa. From dogs to evil workers to circumcision, they all start with kappa. So beware the KKK, the kappa, kappa, kappa. Uh, They all start with Kappa. They all are Jewish insults that are turned back against the Jewish people because fundamentally when he says, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the mutilation, he's talking about Jewish arrogance. He's talking about Jewish arrogance and the problem that can happen if it starts to creep in. And Philippi was not a town that had a significant Jewish population, but if they started to creep in, they had to have their eyes open to it and see it for what it was. And so that's what happens here. So by calling Jews dogs, he's, he's taking one of their favorite insults and he's turning it back towards them and he's applying it directly to them. Likewise, evildoers. The Jews would view themselves pridefully as the only people doing good in this world. They're the only people that, uh, that have the law. They're the only people that have a standard of righteousness. And they would view all the Gentiles as evildoers while they were the, 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 the good doers, if you will. And, and Paul just turns that back on them too and says, no, they're evil workers. And then uh, with circumcision, he takes the term circumcision, paratame, and he, he 
kind of creates an insult of it by changing the peri to a kata, making it another K word, and uh, taking it from um, circumcision to mutilation is what he does there. Kata tamain is mutilation, refers to something that's just chopped off and mangled. Okay, and clearly, you know, a circumcision is the chopping off of the the foreskin, uh, and we understand how that works for the male boys, for the male children that are born. And yet, uh, in terms of chopping something off, you might remember we, we looked at this in, uh, in the Galatians study, because that was another struggle there with Galatians. There were people trying to, trying to force the Galatian Gentiles to be circumcised. And, uh, Paul was beside himself there too and said, you know, if he'd like to chop something off while he was at it. And he, he actually had a little bit of a, a play on words there also, where he wanted to get a little violent with, uh, with the crowd there. And so this play on words changes peri to kata and uh, makes an insult out of it. The point being, though, is that if we're reading it in English, it might look like that we have the same word in both verses, verse 2 and verse 3, that both verses have the word circumcision, and that it's just that verse 2 has a you know, pseudo or some kind of a false adjective, and uh, verse 3 has aletheia or some kind of a truth adjective, right? And that is not the case. It is not the case that both uh, verses have a circumcision word and uh, with with the uh, opposing adjectives of false and true. The fact is, they are the mutilation, we are the circumcision. And that's what it's trying to say, and that's what I'm trying to say here this morning. We are the circumcision. Let me get past all these dog notes, and here we have it. Point three now. We are the circumcision. If it's hard to think of ourselves as the circumcision, just write it down and think about it, pray about it, and spend some time on it. But it's not the only place in the Bible where we have an Old Testament ritual that is brought into, where that metaphor is used to, to be brought into an application. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we find out that Christ is our Passover. All right? And so uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and that might be useful just to take a quick peek at again here this morning. But because we have the language of cleaning out the uh, the leaven and being a new lump, remember this? First Corinthians 5, uh, I guess we'll pick up in verse 6. It says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And so there's a metaphor here with respect to bread and, and, and dough and leaven. And, uh, and that's, that's what leaven does. Leaven grows, leaven spreads. So he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. And so obviously we're talking in metaphor, but there's a principle there. Leaven represents sin. We want to remove sin from our personal lives. We want to remove uh, sin from uh, a congregational life aspects there. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. All right, so we're not Jews, we're not in the Old Testament, we don't observe Passover, but there is a principle that we want to learn from based on how they used to do it, based upon how Passover used to be for them. And uh, since they had a practice whereby they had to remove leaven, that's the application. We want to remove sin. We want to be uh, as, as sin-free as we possibly can. And when we do sin, we want to confess our sins. We want to be restored to fellowship. We want to minimize our time in carnality and maximize our time in spirituality because it's only on that basis that we can, that we can function. We can operate in our priesthood, that we can serve God in, uh, in any effective way. And so Christ, our Passover, has been crucified. So um, we don't have a Passover ritual, but Israel did. Christ is our Passover in the sense that the spiritual realities of their Passover are our realities in Christ, right? And so we took the time to look through Exodus chapter 12. We've got to see the principle of shedding the blood and applying the blood and having wrath pass over without wrath being applied. We, we saw all of the spiritual realities of Passover and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. That's easy. And then we get to circumcision. We say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> how are we circumcision? What are the spiritual realities of circumcision? So 
This is the corollary now. We don't have a circumcision ritual. The church was not given a circumcision ritual for observance. Nowhere in the New Testament is the church told to circumcise a new believer in Christ. So we don't have one, but Israel did. We are the circumcision ritual in the sense that the spiritual realities of our sign and seal are evident in our spiritual service before God. We have spiritual realities of our sign and our seal, and they should be evident. As a matter of fact, as far as us being the sign and the seal, uh, it should be evident uh, with respect to us belonging to Jesus Christ. And so uh, we have the scriptures here. Romans 4, 11, and 12 is uh, a passage that addresses circumcision as it relates to um, Abraham. As it relates to Abraham, uh, Romans 4. How then was it credited? Of course, it was credited, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How? Paul asked the question here, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? fact is, is Genesis 15, 6, where, where that statement was made, was before his circumcision in chapter 17. The statement was from chapter 15. The circumcision doesn't happen until chapter 17. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision. So it's a sign. We want to understand what is our position in Christ when we are called the circumcision. There's going to be a connection there with a sign. Likewise with a seal. Again, verse 11, the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And so it's Romans 4.11 then that uses the language of sign and seal. And I think that's important. We want to recognize that. That there was something more than just uh, cutting off of a, of, a, of a foreskin on an eight-day-old baby boy. All right, there is something uh, significant with respect to the the ritual that identifies Jewish men as being a part of the covenant nation of Israel, as being the people of God, the chosen people of God. All right. <clears throat> also, and it's not just uh, it's not just Romans four that's addressing this. I think Romans 2 has an expression here. In Romans 2.29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Even in the Old Testament, where the Jewish people had a physical ritual, there still, even for them, was supposed to be doctrine. There was supposed to be a spiritual reality that they would understand that they would recognize that physical requirement doesn't, uh, doesn't cut it, all right? Sorry. That physical requirements uh, is not the totality of God's plan. That he expected them to, to operate in the physical requirements with circumcision, with the dietary re- restrictions, with, uh, with everything else that went around being the earthly covenant people. Nevertheless, they also had a spiritual component as well as Romans 2.29 makes clear. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And uh, they should have had that reality as well. Sadly, they didn't, and that's, I think, why the, the warning comes here in, in Philippians 3.3. 3. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 is another expression of this. Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6, <clears throat> where they're told in the... Uh, in the millennial kingdom, the second advent of Jesus Christ, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And so in the second advent of Jesus Christ, when they're promised a global restoration, that they will have a heart circumcision to match the, uh, the bodily uh, circumcision that they had in the Old Testament times. All right, so... We think about the spiritual realities of circumcision. Effectively, what it means is that I am a part of the covenant people. That I, For a Jewish person in the Old Testament, when I'm circumcised, it means that I identify with a people who are different. How are we different? We're different in a lot of ways. But one way in particular is this ritual of circumcision, that I am marked as being different. 
All right. And yet, kind of joked about this on Wednesday, marked in a very private place, marked in a very private way, all right, by virtue of, I mean, it's not like uh, they were taking a, a newborn boy and chopping off an arm so that for the rest of his life, everyone could look around and see these one-armed men and go, oh, you're one-armed, you must be Jewish, okay? Um, circumcision is more private than that in the, the nature of the, the foreskin being removed in that who sees that, okay? Other than the boy's parents or the, uh, the, the Levite in charge of circumcision or... Um, uh, his his wife that when his wedding day finally comes along, or you know, I mean, this is this is something that's not typically seen, right? It's not typically observed. They, they didn't have to prove it, uh, you know, in in showing ID or any kind of, uh, of other thing. And 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 so, I mean, it it seems ludicrous almost, and you could kind of make jokes about it, probably more fitting on Wednesday night than Sunday morning, but you can make jokes about the fact that circumcision is a sign. Well, who sees that sign? Okay. Well, the person that's, that experiences it sees it, and God. Okay. So it's a very private sign. Nevertheless, it remains a sign, and it is a reminder and uh, that there is something different between us and the Gentiles, between us and, we would say in the church age, between the saved and the lost, the believer and the unbeliever. Now, um, other things, I think, with respect to circumcision. And let's return back to Philippians 3 because I don't have to invent things. They're, they're listed right here. Worshiping in the Spirit of God, glorying in Christ Jesus, and putting no confidence in the flesh. Those three expressions are expansions upon the statement, we are the circumcision, okay? So I'm going to take it at face value and say, oh, this is what it means to be the circumcision, all right? That we worship in the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Those three definitions come to us from Philippians 3.3, 3, okay? So three things stand out in this sign and seal, and really, I, I think these three are marvelous descriptions of not only what does it mean to be a believer uh, in contrast to an unbeliever, but a church age believer in contrast with an Old Testament believer. All right, because we have the spiritual realities, and that's all we have. We don't have the earthly rituals. We don't have the earthly observance. We don't have enforced circumcision, enforced Sabbath observance. Uh, feasts and, and, uh, and uh, festivals and all the other liturgical things that they had in the Old Testament. So first thing is, we worship in the Spirit of God. We worship in the Spirit of God. Statement number one, we worship in the Spirit of God. Do we realize how unique that is? And uh, has Jesus promised this in John 4, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well? worshiping in the Spirit of God. And you say, well, didn't they always do this? No, that's the point. There was a lot of worship in the Old Testament, but the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is unique to our dispensation. It's unique to our stewardship. Having the, uh, and, and everything that goes with the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fact that we can worship by means of the Spirit, we can be filled with the Spirit, we can, everything we do by the Spirit, learning the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit. All these things are unique to the church age. And we don't want to lose sight of that. John chapter 4, as Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And then to me, that's extraordinary. <laughs> when you look at Psalm 119, you look at Psalm 23, you see there was a lot of worship in the Old Testament. Job worshipped, all the Old Testament saints worshipped. But very few of them had the Holy Spirit to worship with, in, by, by means of, through, all right? They didn't have the permanent indwelling that we have, the empowerment that we have in order to worship. And so worship was effectively uh, a human endeavor uh, shaped by the Word of God, shaped by the soul capacity of a, of a living human spirit that loved the Word of God and wanted to reflect the Word of God back. And, and yet it was not spirit-empowered. And that's, uh, to me, we want to recognize that for what it is. So John chapter 4, and here's Jesus at the well with this woman. And I love this. this. This is such a great story in so many 
respects, but understand who the Samaritans are. They're Gentiles. They're Gentiles that are quasi-Jewish because <laughs> they, pl- they got planted in a Jewish territory. They intermarried with some renegade uh, Levites and some other Jewish people. And they had their own copy of the Torah. They had their own copy of the law called the Samaritan Pentateuch. So they had five books of the Old Testament written in their language. And they had kind of a, a replica of Mosaic Judaism in the sense that uh, they had the, the Torah, they had the law, the first five books. They didn't have the Psalms, they didn't have the prophets, they didn't have the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. But just with the five books of, of the law in their language, they set up kind of a, a quasi you know, Yahweh worship center. And they set it up in their territory, on their mountain, on Mount Gerizim. And so this woman now finally has a chance to get her questions answered because it's been bugging her. <laughs> you could tell it's been bugging her. And, uh, and I love the fact here, oh, probably um, when he exposes her, her uh, adultery in, uh, in 17 and 18 here, he says, uh, you've had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband. Um, you would think, possibly, that, uh, that a woman of this nature would be offended, that she would be angry, that she would be uh, you know, having these sins exposed and whatnot. And instead, she's immediately humbled and excited and thrilled that she's face to face with a prophet. She says in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> and wow, now I got a chance to get my questions answered. She's been waiting for years to get this figured out. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people <clears throat> say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Okay? Now, if, if you don't have, if all you got is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what's the big deal about Jerusalem? Okay? Uh, the, the idea that, you know, that, that Solomon built the temple there, the idea that David offered a sacrifice there, or that he had a prayer there, or anything. Jerusalem and its significance comes later. It comes in, in, in uh, Joshua when they conquer it. It comes in, in, or actually in David's time when they conquered it, right? And so if all you've got is a Pentateuch, Jerusalem may not be a big of a deal. And, but now she wants her question answered. Is it in Jerusalem or is it, is it Mount Zion or is it Mount Gerizim? What's the, what's the mountain here? And so Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming. Okay? And understand how dispensationally as he's addressing this, he's, uh, the church is still a mystery. He's not going to talk about the church directly, but there are intimations here. This hour is coming. And then in verse 23 he says, an hour is coming and now is. We want to pay attention to that too. Uh, He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. That basically answers her question there, that it's it's not the Samaritan Pentateuch, it's the Hebrew Pentateuch and the Hebrew Psalms and and prophets and and other writings in the Hebrew canon that is the revealed word of of Yahweh. And uh, as far as that goes, from an an Old Testament standpoint, the Jewish people are the stewards, not not the Samaritans. And the, the Hebrew Scriptures are God-breathed and inspired, not the Samaritan translation. But back to this idea that an hour is coming when geographical worship is irrelevant. Okay, When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Notice what he did say, though. They are worshiping on their mountain in their way, but that's coming to an end. The geographic centers are coming to an end. Because an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. All right? And so there needs to be a spiritual reality. You can't just walk into the temple in Jerusalem. Even if you happen to be at the right temple, if you're there in the wrong way, God's not going to accept you. And if you're there uh, on, the, on just an external basis, without a, if it's just ritual without reality, God's not going to be pleased with that. Read uh, Isaiah 1 sometime and see, he starts calling them Sodom and Gomorrah when they're bringing all these worthless offerings. He has no regard for their offerings. So uh, 
true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so think about it. There is a coming church age is imminent in which uh, the geographic worship centers are going to be irrelevant. You don't have to go to a, to a temple. Uh, you don't have to go to the Holy of Holies because we're in the Holy of Holies in the church age. We enter within the veil that is His flesh. That we are in the presence of the Father right now, actually, in our Melchizedek priesthood. And so we, uh, we have the privilege to be able to do that. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit, and in truth. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's not worship. All right? If you don't have the reality underneath uh, the ritual, then it's just empty ritual. See? And uh, in fact, God hates it. Let me go ahead and grab Isaiah 1 while I'm thinking about it. Isaiah 1, just because it's blunt, and it, uh, I think it spells it out. He calls them worthless. Bring your worthless offerings. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Okay? He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. They, They were destroyed centuries earlier. He's talking to Jerusalem. He's talking to the rulers and he's talking to the people. And since he's got two uh, objects to talk to, he calls the first group Sodom and the second group Gomorrah. And it's, uh, it's a nifty uh, poetry on this. <clears throat> what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? <laughs> you know, your sacrifices are wrong to begin with and multiplying them doesn't help. You know, when, when your religion is off the rails, more religion doesn't make it better. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? He says, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Now, why does he take pleasure in them? Aren't they in the law? Aren't they commanded? Aren't they obeying him by doing what he told them to do? See, here's a problem. They can do external service, but if their heart is far from him, it's not a sweet-smelling savor. It doesn't smell good at all. So he says, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Trampling. Like when you're dragging mud through mom's kitchen. Okay, Mom doesn't like that. Take those bunny shoes back outside again. All right. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? That's what they're doing. With their carnal worship, with their strange fire. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. If you come to Bible class out of fellowship, that's what this verse is talking about. If you sit here in carnality for an hour, sit here in carnality for two hours, man, what are you doing here? Get in fellowship. He says he hates it otherwise. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Put this on your list of things God cannot do. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. Here's God in biblical hate, sanctified hate. It's a love expression. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. He doesn't say he cannot. He says he will not. Your hands are covered with blood. And so here's the solution. Cleanse yourself. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. And so you've got to be cleansed. The whole point is being cleansed, being in fellowship. All right. Um, so that's extra credit. Romans 7 and verse 6. part of the blessings of being in the church age we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit not in the oldness of the letter i tell you i wouldn't trade the church age for anything (laughs) i wouldn't go back to the old testament oh my you know if i had a time machine maybe i'd go back for a day or two and just visit look around take some pictures but i wouldn't live there 
I wouldn't live there. I wouldn't want to operate under Mosaic law. Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. Okay. And so think about it. Worshiping in the Spirit of God. Worshiping in the Spirit of God. Now think about it. The, um, we want we, we to have the reality and, and, we wanna, and we get to do so with a Spirit-empowered reality. That's even better. Okay? That's even better. In the, uh, for for the, the Jews in the Old Testament, any Old Testament saint, they had ritual. They, they should have had reality with their ritual. Okay? And then their, their ritual would have been acceptable. <coughs> we, though... We get the reality without the ritual, right? So they should have had both. The problem was they only had the ritual and they didn't have the reality. We get to have the reality and we don't have to have the ritual at all. We don't have to have any of the the externals. And yet we have the reality because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. What a thrill. What an absolute blessing for us. And that's only the first component here. The second component is we glory in Christ Jesus. Again, Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And here's a contrast from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what glory did they have in the Old Testament? They had a lot of promised glory in the Old Testament. They had a lot of expected glory in the Old Testament. They had a whole lot of promises that glory is coming someday in the Old Testament. But the only present glory that they had was a Shekinah glory that they couldn't approach. They had a Shekinah glory that was in the Holy of Holies that only one guy could approach one day a year. And so that was their glory. And then they had a glory in a sense when Moses would come out from the from the, uh, the presence of the Lord and his face would be shining with a glory. But even that was a glory that was fading away. Even that was a glory that as he was coming out of the, uh, out of the uh, tent of meeting, that it was diminishing and diminishing and diminishing. It was, getting, it was as bright as it could get when he first stepped out and then it diminished, diminished, diminished the longer he was away from God's presence. And it was kind of a depressing thing. It was a, uh, uh, and so they, he put a veil on his face so they couldn't watch the, the, the glory fade away see that was glory in the old testament he's coming someday we have a glory constantly all day every day we have a glory that's not waiting to come we have a glory that 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 we presently experience again it's our position in christ it's the reality of who we are in christ blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ we have a present glory and i like what Romans 15 says, and verse 17, Galatians 6, 14, <clears throat> some other passages I think that we can, we can uh, include with this. But it says in Romans 15, 17, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Glory and boasting is the same term, okay? We, we boast in Christ. We're not boasting in ourselves we're boasting in Christ. We're glorying in Christ. And I'm doing so today. I've got every reason to boast today based on what Christ is doing today. And uh, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. If, if he had success in ministry, who was he giving credit to? Giving credit to Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. If there's some kind of fruit that happened among the Gentiles, well, praise Christ. Christ is the one that did the work. And as he says in verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as, I always mispronounce this, Illyricum. Yeah, Illyricum. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Okay? on the coast of Dalmatia. It's, anyway, Yugoslavia later on, or Croatia today. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he wants to get to Rome. He's riding to Rome, but he's never been to Rome. But as far as he's traveled, as far as he's gone, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And who's getting the glory? Christ is getting the glory. What a privilege. Whatever he's chosen to do, That's his good pleasure. We're going to glory in 
Christ Jesus. Likewise, Galatians 6.14. Galatians 6.14. This is where, uh, again, he's talking to these... uh, (laughs) These uh, folks and the, the Judaizers were coming in there and trying to get all the Galatians to be circumcised, dealing with those guys. But he says in verse 14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. All the boasting we can do, all the glorying we can do is presently in Christ. And that's, uh, that's a thrill. That is a thrill. And are we waiting for a kingdom? Yes. Are we waiting for a trumpet? Yes. Do we want to go to heaven when that trumpet sounds? Of course. We're living day by day, waiting for the trumpet, waiting for the, the, the rapture of the church. It could happen now. It could happen before. And then I guess, I don't know, unbelievers have to come and eat all the hot dogs and hamburgers and whatever else. All right. I'm not going to stick around. When that trumpet sounds, we're, we're out of here. So we have future hopes. But just because we have those future hopes, we also, at the same time, we have present glory. We have present glory in a way that Israel never had. We have a present glory, even while we're waiting for our future hope. Israel didn't have that. Israel just had a a future, uh, an anticipation of a future glory. And I think that's significant as well. And then thirdly, we're told, Put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. And maybe this is easier for us in the church age than it was for believers in the Old Testament, uh, putting confidence in the flesh. Because Paul points out here in the very next verse, he says, you know, it's easy to do. Humans can, can start boasting, you know, at the drop of a hat. If, and, and we can, I mean, we'll drop the hat if we have to. We can, we can drop the hat ourselves just to start boasting at the drop of a hat. Because that's what we can do. That's what <clears throat> carnality will do, fallen humanity will do. And, and so, in a way, I think that there's an edge for, for us in the New Testament. There's us, an edge for us in the church age because we don't have the earthly requirements, because we don't have the external observances. We don't have all of the liturgical ritual, see, when you have all that, you can thrive in that and be better than the next guy. And you don't even have to be saved. You don't even have to know the Bible much, except you, you, you just have the list of do's and don'ts and you're better at the do's and don'ts than the next guy. And you don't have to be intimate with Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a, a fellowship. You don't have to know him in the power of his suffering and the, the fellowship of his resurrection. You just have to know the list of do's and don'ts and do and don't. Okay, outdo and outdon't the other guy, and clearly then you're better than that guy if you've boiled it down to that. See, and that's the tragedy of of legalism. And so, putting no confidence in the flesh is really a thrill for us in uh, in the church age. Second Corinthians five verses sixteen and seventeen, and. Uh, And I think we find language here and you understand what we're dealing with. Um, you know, the, uh, there's so much in the Old Testament was wrapped up in the physical. Who you were born to, who your parents were. I mean, that determined almost everything right there. This, this guy that was boasting about a circumcision didn't really have a choice in the matter. <laughs> okay? He's an eight-year-old little boy. What does he know? Okay? He knows just about as much as an eight-year-old little girl, okay? Only difference is he's got pain to deal with on that eighth day, okay? Which he's not going to remember by the time he's old enough to talk about it, okay? And yet from birth, you're either Jewish or you're Gentile, and you can't change it. And if you're Jewish, you're in the tribe you're in, whatever tribe you're in, Okay, and you can't just aspire to uh, a priesthood if you're not a Levite and if you're not of the descendants of Aaron. And uh, whatever tribe you're in, if you're just a, you know, a knucklehead from Naphtali, 
there you go. You're from this obscure tribe that never had a famous person anywhere in the Old Testament. And think about it, though. And what are you then left to do? Okay, well, you're going to be part of a clan. You're going to become a, a part of a tribe and part of a family. And you're going to, you're going to be observant. And you're going to have uh, all of the rituals. And you're going to have uh, Passover and, and Pentecost. And you're going to have uh, trumpets and booths. And you're going to have all the things to observe. Okay? And, well, maybe uh, I, can, I, can, I can outdo the next guy. Maybe I can become good by being a legalist. Maybe I can, I can become a very religious Naphtali knucklehead. I can, become, I, can, I can outdo the next guy. And what if I just start memorizing these verses? I might even become a scribe. What tribe do the scribes come from? Okay. Ah, here's something I can do. Anyway, there's other things with respect to the flesh. But you know what? In the church age, we don't have any of that. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, uh, 5, 16 says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. No recognition. No recognition for who you are, for what you are, for your race, for your gender, for your uh, tax bracket, for whatever else. Okay? Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, he did have a first advent where his tribe and clan and lineage was significant, yet we now we know him in this way no longer. Okay? First advent, he was of the line of David, he was of the tribe of Judah, he was entitled to the throne. That was significant then. But they rejected their Messiah He ascended to the Father's right hand. He was seated at the Father's right hand, not on the throne of David. The present ministry has no bearing upon his Davidic lineage. We recognize him this way no longer. We know him. We recognize him. We regard him. we, We esteem him in this way no longer. The earthly requirements are done as far as Christ, as far as us, in the church age. It's the power of an indestructible life. That he holds a Melchizedek high priesthood, we hold Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. That's how we recognize one another from now on. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I think that's a better translation than creature, but that's okay. He is a new creature, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We have a new stewardship in the church age. This is something that was not seen in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. It was not revealed. It was kept hidden. And this is, this is a, a, just a thrill to stop and consider the blessings we have in Christ. The fact that this is, uh, allows us to, to exhibit our place as the circumcision, as the sign and seal of, of who we are in Christ. We are a new creation. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a blessing. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so we don't put confidence in the flesh. We're not boasting about who we are. We're not boasting about who our parents are. We're not boasting about uh, our tax bracket, our, our socioeconomic status. We're not bragging about where we stand in the pecking order and where we are, if we're upper class, middle class, lower class, or somewhere on the spectrum in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a range there somewhere. Who cares about any of that? That's why I think if you, if you truly digest New Testament truth, if you're dispensational, you can't be a racist. You can't be a sexist. You can't be uh, uh, any of these things that, that are dividing humanity today. Hebrews 7 and verse 16. You know, it's evident It's evident. Verse 13 says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. You know, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is from Judah. You can search the whole Scriptures, you're not going to find Judah officiating at the altar. Levi is the high priest. Levi is the priestly tribe. And so it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, 
a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. It's Aaron and his sons. And every other Levite that's not a descendant of Aaron is a Levite. They are the assistants to the priests. And it's the Levitical tribe that has the priestly function, not Judah. And so it's clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who became such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. Right? What was the physical requirement? Yeah, you got to be the son of a priest. Okay? And if you're going to be the high priest, you got to be the son of the high priest. That's the physical requirement. You couldn't be from another tribe. You couldn't be from a non-Aaronic family of a, or clan uh, within. You had Kohath and Merari and those other clans within Levi. They weren't priests. They were Levites. Oh, and by the way, if you were a girl, forget it. <laughs> no girl priests. So even if you were a daughter of Aaron, you weren't a priest. Okay? You were going to marry a priest and give birth to priests, but you weren't a priest. So the power the law of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. That's Jesus, that's us. And that's not us when we get to heaven, that's us today. Right here, right now, from the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, what do you receive? An indestructible life. Yep, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that indestructible life, and we have it today. We hold our priesthood today. We should be active in our priesthood today. It's the function of, uh, of the Melchizedek priesthood in the church age. So we'll say more on that. We'll have more to deal with that as it relates to, uh, to these things. All right. And so the, uh, the imagery of us as circumcision is such that we are um, the sign and the seal, that we are God's covenant people, and it might be in such a way that folks don't automatically see it, right? Can people see your eternal life? We are indwelled with the Spirit. Can you see that? We can feel the Spirit. It's like wind, but can we see it? See? And so circumcision was a private sign and seal that most people didn't look at. Uh, us as the sign and seal, us being the circumcision, likewise, can't be seen by the unbelievers of this world, but can definitely be seen by those that are us. In other words, we recognize one another, uh, not according to the flesh any longer, but on the basis of our position in Christ. All right. And so we have that. Back to Philippians 3 then. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although, if I do say so myself, (laughs) I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. And this is where he takes a little bit of a side trip and says, you know what? Here you go. Point four in the outline. If any Old Testament saint or New Testament saint could boast in the flesh, it would be Saul of Tarsus, who could outboast any Old Testament saint, and or the Apostle Paul, who could outboast any New Testament saint. If any Old Testament saint or New Testament saint could boast in the flesh, it would be Saul of Tarsus and or the Apostle Paul. And we're going to take some time, and we're going to go through here. And why do we take the time? Because the Holy Spirit took the time to put these verses in here, verse 4, 5, and 6. And it's not the only place he does this. He also does it in 2 Corinthians 11. It comes out a few times in, in the book of Acts when he makes various defenses before Felix and Festus and, and Agrippa when he talks about his former manner of life and how he was thriving. His former manner of life and how he just had everything going for him. He was, he was top of his class and he was, he was a rising star. No question in my mind. He could have, given how corrupt the process was, you know, he, he could have become the you know, president of the Sanhedrin had he chosen, you know. 
in any event. Um, let's look at these in verses 4, 5, and 6. We'll see the parallels in Second Corinthians 11, Acts 22, 23, 26. He makes this defense a lot. Every time he stands on trial, he gets, a, he gets a new judge. He's got a new chance to give his testimony. He's got a brand new chance to talk about his former manner of life and the things that he could boast in, but he just brushes them off. And that's the point. And when he's done, the whole, the whole issue is, is that you and I don't waste our time boasting about anything. Because whatever we come up with is going to pale compared to the Apostle Paul. right? So there's no point in, uh, in doing that. All right, so um, if anyone else, if I, although I myself might boast in the flesh or have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Six different criteria right there, and all six of them makes him better than me, right? Better than you, better than anybody that's reading this this letter, better than any of the the dogs, evil workers, and mutilation crowd that might come in someday. He's, He's outdone them all, better than all of them, better than the rich young ruler they went to Jesus, okay? Because the rich young ruler that went to Jesus said, I've done it, I've deserved heaven. And Jesus said, no, you're still lacking one thing. And when Jesus highlighted uh, his, his money issue, the guy hung his head and walked away. And he realized he wasn't as perfect as he thought he was. <laughs> right? Paul was better than him. He'd learned the secret of getting along with humble means or getting along in, in uh, prosperity. He'd, uh, he, he'd outdone the rich young ruler. As far as earthly requirements are concerned, you couldn't, the 613 commandments of the law, not one broken commandment. He was good to go. He has earned glory. Or in his mind he has. No one's pointed out a flaw yet. Okay? And so this is what he's boasting in. And we're going to go through some of these because I think it's, it's curious. Circumcised the eighth day. Can you really boast in that? You didn't do it. Your parents did it. But you can. You can boast in the fact that, uh, that you had that child. And I boast in it. I boast in the fact that I had believing parents. That I was grounded in a believing church. That I was in Sunday school before I was even saved. And then I got saved. And I stayed in Sunday school. And then I started learning even more. <laughs> okay? I don't know what I learned before I was saved. But, um, you know, you learn how to sit still. You learn how to listen to your teacher. You learn how to not cause trouble. It's kind of fun. Okay. Oh, I had some troublemakers. By the way, I pray for one. His name is Darren Krause. Okay. Ken and Darren Krause uh, were two brothers I grew up with. Darren is the older brother. Ken was closer to my age. But anyway. um, And so, yeah, we've known each other since we were in in the nursery, in the Sunday school. And uh, now Darren Krause has been appointed chairman of the pulpit committee for uh, our childhood church for Evergreen Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington. So pray for that and uh, pray for Darren. He needs wisdom. He needs guidance. He's never done anything like this before. Okay, uh, we're talking about a, a church that's had two pastors in fifty years. Okay, that don't have a lot of experience forming pulpit committees. Okay. Anyway, so uh, so pray for that. And uh, the, the advantages you have in, in childhood, the advantages you have when your parents are saved, it's a tougher road, you know, when uh, my parents didn't grow up in, with, with believing parents, and so they got saved later, and, and, uh, and then uh, it's, it's tougher when you're that zero generation that gets saved, and then you can bring your children into the world and lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ at a very young age, and, uh, and make sure they're grounded in that, uh, in that way. All right, so we see the, uh, the boasting here. And everything here is all in the Jewish context. I think it's, it's curious. When we get to 2 Corinthians 11, we have more of the church age boasting that, he could, that, that the Apostle Paul could boast in. 2 Corinthians 11. And, I, and I, by the way, I think Philippians was written before 2 Corinthians. And so there's a progression in his boasting. In 2 Corinthians 11 now, he adds a church age component to the Jewish boasting that he had done in Philippians. 
2 Corinthians 11, starting in uh, verse 18. Um, And with respect to false apostles, deceitful workers, in verse 13, the servants of Satan, Satan himself disguised himself as an angel of light. So Paul says, okay, all right, uh, bear with me with a little foolishness here. (laughs) And uh, since many boast according to the flesh, I'll boast also. And now he starts to throw some boasting their direction that's not so much Jewish in its emphasis. Let's see what he says here with respect to these guys. Um, So since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. You tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that I, we have been weak by comparison. Now, he does talk about his Jewish roots, but then he goes past that. So let's see here. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Isn't that all three things the same? <laughs> all right, Paul, you're bragging here, but you're kind of saying the same thing over and over again. Are they, uh, we'll talk about that too, by the way, when we talk about the difference between being of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the, um, of the uh, um, Hebrew, of the Hebrews. We'll get into that in, in Philippians. Uh, but, but he goes be far beyond that. Are they servants of Christ? Are they servants of Christ? So now he's bringing it into the New Testament and he's giving some church age boasting. I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Notice he's not tracking the sermons he's preached. (laughs) He's not tracking the souls he's led to Christ, the unbelievers he's evangelized. You know, so he's he's witnessed to, to 50, he's baptized 40, he's taught 5,255 times, whatever it is. He's talking about how many times he's been in jail, how many times he's been beaten, how many times he's been in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That just gets me every time I read that. You saw the Mel Gibson movie, Okay. That was brutal as Hollywood can do the makeup and do the special effects and you just see the meat ripped off the, the body with those hooks in the, in the thing, okay? Absolutely brutal. He endured that five times on five separate occasions. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. What have we done in our Christian walk? You know, we're going to see some real heroes of the judgment seat of Christ, men of whom this world is not worthy. And I just think, wow, how fat, dumb, and happy we had it here as American Christians. And how, how, uh, how dare we not serve the Lord and teach and feed and do everything we can do. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. There's a term. We're going to have that coming up with uh, um, his uh, kinsmen, according to the flesh, countrymen. Your countrymen, by the way, come from your country, not a different country. All right. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then he says, apart from such external things, apart from such external things, all those shipwrecks, all those beatings, that's just the earthly stuff. There's the spiritual struggle, the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? You know, you watch someone who used to have an amazing appetite for doctrine and now you see them once or twice a month and it hurts because you know they're spiritually starving and the shepherd hurts to see that. And I only know one, you know, the privilege of shepherding one flock. The Apostle Paul had a dozen or more flocks and pastors and other knuckleheads he was dealing with praying for those guys. 
And so then he says, okay, well, if I have to boast, I'm going to boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. So I think we have a, a transition there from Jewish boasting to church age boasting. And if any uh, Old Testament saint or New Testament saint could boast in the flesh, it would be Saul of Tarsus. So we, we shouldn't waste our time. We're going to go through the details on this on Wednesday, talk about the tribe of Benjamin, talk about circumcision and some of these other things. But we're just out of time here this morning. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. I pray that we would uh, read it, that we would digest it, that we would understand it. Mostly, Father, we would recognize that uh, that for us to start boasting is a non-starter. Father, uh, uh, there's, there's no reason to boast in ourselves. Why would we want to? Uh, you've done all the work. Your son's done all the work. Great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. So, Father, I, I pray that we would have this uh, attitude uh, the attitude John the Baptist expressed when he said he must increase and I must decrease. Let us, uh, let us make that a daily focus, that uh, each day should be less and less about us and more and more about Jesus. Father, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.